Hey everybody, this is Jared Rose, host of Outside the 90, and we're back after a little bit of a hiatus over the past month or two. Uh, I've been spending a little bit of time working on a blog, uh, The Dreams of Our Fathers. It's a little bit of a, a little bit of a historical work about kind of like what athletes went through, what soccer players went through in the 1980s to get soccer in America to become kind of a mainstream sport and to be, and to be a sport that's taken seriously. Uh, but because of that, I've taken a little bit of break from podcasting, but I'd like to get back to that a little bit now that we're in quarantine and there's been some pretty big news kind of flying out every day on the U.S. soccer front, not just the U.S. soccer front, but the world soccer front. So today I'm going to have my college roommate, Nate Ream, come on the show, and we're just going to talk about some of the recent developments, primarily youth soccer in America. As you may know, uh, the Development Academy has been disbanded by United States Soccer Federation. So we're just going to kind of talk about that a little bit, give some opinions on that, but uh, I hope you guys enjoy the show. Hey Nate, thanks for coming on today and welcome to the show. So uh, first off, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, how's your quarantine going? <laughs> it's going well, uh, working from home, so I still got a job which is nice, but you know, can't complain, keeping my social distance and all that. I'm in the same boat, I'm just in a nightmare of waking up at the same time every day, rolling out of bed and slipping on my Ugg slippers. This podcast is in no way brought to you by Uggs, but they are <laughs> tremendous. Um, just as a shout out there. But yeah, nothing nothing else really going on, so I thought I would uh, start a podcast. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. Alright, so to kind of dive into soccer here a little bit, uh, in one of our older episodes with Tim Regan, if you haven't yet listened to that, go give it a listen. It's, uh, it's listed in the, the other sections. But um, he asked the question, who does the responsibility of player development rest on? The United States Soccer Federation or the clubs? And I asked this because obviously, as mentioned in the read-in, the Development Academy has been disbanded by United States Soccer Federation for both boys and girls for uh, the future. Yeah, I listened to that episode, and uh, I thought everybody should like, go give that a listen, because Tim uh, provided a lot of insight um, that a lot of people that you're in my age would not, uh, would not be exposed to. Um, that being said, I believe uh, the development should rest on the clubs themselves for the vast majority of players. I would say 99% of players, uh, it should rest on the clubs. Um, most people aren't going to be turning professional. You know, this is a hobby or something they might be... Uh, aspiring to play in college even and some people would be happy playing there some would just be happy making their varsity squad and I believe that uh, the clubs are responsible for those players however uh, we'll call them the elite level players you know the kids playing national team level soccer uh, from the youth levels all the way up that rests on USSF United States Soccer Federation that those people need to take uh, precedent and I believe US soccer should focus specifically on those players to try and cultivate, um, you know, as competitive of a national team at the senior level as possible. So would you impose that through basically kind of how they used to impose it by calling in a national team squad? Everybody reports the best 28, 16-year-olds in the country as deemed by some governing body that decides that those kids are the best and they're brought into a national team camp with 30 or however many of them are going to come in? Or do you think that it's more beneficial if FC Dallas just runs it and they, they run their own team and if their best player on FC Dallas is deemed to be Christian Pulisic quality, he gets sold to Europe? Or, 
or something like that. That is kind of essentially how it's run in England between the academy systems. The FA has no involvement in player development whatsoever. They're more in the business of player scouting and picking the best players for their national team. Yeah, I would agree with kind of what you were touching on. Um, maybe I wasn't making myself clear. With USSF, I believe that they should be focusing uh, you know, through ODP, um, not necessarily controlling their, their lives and where they're, they're playing necessarily. Like if they have an opportunity overseas, I believe those players should be allowed to do that. If FC Dallas, for whatever reason, sells a youth player or something like that, um, they should be allowed to do so. Uh, but what I'm saying is I feel like in my uh, youth career, ODP kind of got kicked to the curb a little bit, um, and more people started taking precedent over uh, DA Academy. And um, I believe that you know there should be more focus on um, ODP. A lot of people don't really value that, to my knowledge, anymore, um, as at least to where it was back when even my brothers, who are 10 years older than me, they, they valued it way higher because they didn't have uh, DA back in the day. But I, I just believe that um, the clubs should progress the players, especially with this kind of going off of uh, DA folding this, I'll call it Youth MLS League uh, for the ultra elite clubs and um, MLS clubs. I think that will be a very advantageous situation for that many people will find themselves in OB similar to Europe and you know they'll have professional setting, professional coaches possibly rub shoulders with professionals day in, day out, which I don't see how you couldn't thrive in that environment. Yeah, so what Nate's referencing here, for those who aren't all that up to date is an article that was posted a couple days ago, or actually not not even a couple days ago. News is kind of coming fast, and it's coming fast at us right now. So what he's talking about is there's already a system in place to replace the DA, and basically what what they're proposing is that essentially the DA will continue. It'll just be run by MLS, and it'll be run by the clubs almost. Is from what I gathered, it's obviously hasn't been expanded on very much because it's it's so so new. But it would essentially keep the same clubs who already have development academy status uh, and professional clubs, youth academies. And they would still operate in what I'm assuming is essentially the DA, but just run and op- ran and operated by clubs now. But what I do find interesting is it was mentioned in that article that this will take... Uh, this will allow Major League Soccer clubs to have more competition against other MLS clubs. For example, before, it was hard for teams outside of the divisions that they played in to face other MLS teams, so it would be hard for FC Dallas to play Red Bulls unless it was in a a DA-sanctioned tournament. Now this is going to open the door for more inter-MLS competition and some international competition for elite-level clubs that are coming in. Um, but that's kind of an aside there. That's listed in an article. You can look that up. It's on MLS.com. But my next question for you, Nate, is did the DA serve its purpose to kind of bring the youth program in this country under one umbrella, not having uh, the seven national champions from eight different divisions, but bringing it all under one youth development academy? I would say it was a good thought, and it served its purpose to an extent, Um, but I do believe it was kind of time for a change, especially with the introduction of all these MLS teams, Um, and kind of, I feel like, just, you know, from outside looking in, it seemed that a lot of the MLS clubs uh, were kind of starting to dominate 
DA a little bit, which obviously, why wouldn't they? That's the only place where they can potentially get a homegrown contract. Why would you not try everything you possibly could to try and play for one of those MLS clubs? That's the easiest, not the easiest, but it's a way to go pro. And you want to kind of um, spread your opportunities as, as wide as possible. Um, so I think the DA did serve its purpose. I do think it was time for a change, though, especially uh, it's given the MLS's sudden rise, especially the last couple of years with some of these new teams like um, Atlanta, my hometown team. Um, they're setting attendance records all the time. And uh, I, I think uh, it was definitely time for a change. Yeah, I agree. In, in touching, on, touching on Atlanta, what you just touched on there, there's also on the other side of the country, LAFC, which is by all intents and purposes doing very similar things to what Atlanta was able to do in their inaugural season. I actually, uh, on that blog I was talking about on the read-in, I wrote a little article about super club culture and how super clubs may be coming to America. I, I referenced how they're, they're dominating Europe right now with obviously the big six in England and then you have the El Clasico rivalry and then add in there Atletico Madrid in Spain and you have a lot of these, these super clubs throughout Europe and that those these new clubs like Atlanta United and LAFC compounded with kind of the old blue blood and glory teams like LA Galaxy, they're starting to develop a little bit of a super club culture in America. What do you what do you think about super clubs coming to the MLS? Um, I would say it could be good, but I don't think it'll necessarily turn out well. Um, LA, I mean, LA Galaxy back in the day was kind of what I would call a super club because I mean I feel like. With Bruce Arena, they had, you know, they had Landon Donovan, Robbie Keane, David Beckham. And at the time, I, was, I didn't follow MLS that much. And I probably couldn't tell you 30 other players throughout the entire league. But I could, you know, just off the top of my head, name three guys who played for L.A. Um, that being said, to my knowledge, uh, MLS has a uh, shared agreement through revenue. Um, you know, kind of splitting TV rights. Obviously, they have local TV rights. Um, which are done to individual clubs, but um, the discrepancy in revenue isn't as drastic um, other than like ticket sales as, for example, in Spain. The reason why their super club culture is so drastic is because Barcelona and Real Madrid actually gain a higher percentage of TV revenue just because they know if those teams were out there, they would not be able to uh, generate the revenue that they could via TV. Um, so I believe if MLS kind of sticks with a shared uh, shared revenue um, system. I don't see super clubs, they'll become a thing, but I don't think it'll be as drastic of an issue as you'll see, um, particularly in Spain, with the exception of At Atletico, who um, impressively, under the reign of Diego Simeone, has kind of been able to challenge those top two. And I agree. I think that super clubs go further than on-field record and trophies and all of those accolades. I think there is a certain financial component that I'm not entirely sure MLS is equipped for. Obviously, on previous episodes, we've talked about, um, we've talked about uh, salary caps and revenue sharing and designated players. And all of these things are kind of imposed to keep parity in MLS. We don't, we, MLS is naturally opposed to seeing that super club culture. But the thing that I'm starting to see, either good or bad, depending on which end of the spectrum you fall on, I would assume that most people 
would like to see a little bit more of a big club culture just because that's what they're used to on the international stage. But what Atlanta United is able to do with the, the funding of Arthur Blank and being able to get 70,000 people at a match and then same with LAFC with the, with the clout that their owners are bringing. I mean, Will Ferrell, Mia Hamm, with just the clout they're bringing to their cities and their organizations. And obviously the designated player rules are being relaxed. Obviously David Beckham was the first, but now we're seeing, we're seeing some big-time designated players come through Major League Soccer now. And I was just wondering, do you think that MLS is slowly beginning to relax re- uh, regulations to the point that maybe you might one day see... Um, clubs run entirely independent of Major League Soccer? Or maybe not entirely independent, but more independent than they are now? Yeah, I think that, um, one day we might see that. You know, it might not be in our lifetime, but I definitely think eventually it will get there. I mean, currently, I kind of like the direction it's going. I think a lot of these rules are kind of, one, for fair ground, and two, I mean, let's not forget, I believe it was in our lifetime or just before we were born that um, MLS or the original soccer league, like, folded. So, you know, it's not, um, it's not out of the question at the time, you know, that they kind of protect everybody financially. Everybody had to sacrifice for the common good of soccer in America. And now it's become um, these entities where, you know, they're generating millions and millions of dollars every year. Now, I think I do like the, the lacks of BP. Um, I think it makes very, very interesting um, prospects that you can see. Uh, we'll stick with Atlanta United because I know them very well. I mean, you'll see Emerson Hyndman, who was over in Bournemouth. He got to come back. And they shipped off Almiron to Newcastle, who was, uh, before he came to Atlanta United, was a very sought-after prospect. Uh, Ezekiel Barco, at the time, was before he came to Atlanta United, he was uh, allegedly in talks with you know, Barcelona, Real Madrid, these massive, massive club. And I just think it's, I, I think it's very exciting, uh, the growth. But I do think MLS has done a very good job of not just letting you know these massive clubs like uh, LA United or, or LA um, kind of just run away from the clubs that, you know that may be slightly smaller markets, even if they're I'll call them OGs, you know, original clubs like Columbus, who isn't as financially strong as uh, LA United or LAFC. Yeah, and I agree. And what Nate is referencing there with the collapse was the collapse of the old uh, NASL, which folded in the early to mid 80s and kind of one of the drawbacks from historical point is that NASL was thought to have been run in a very unchecked financial managerial way in the 70s they made Pele the highest paid athlete in the world to play for the New York Cosmos and that that did cause problems throughout the league America wasn't ready for that and their collapse kind of led to major league soccer's culture of frugality that they they began in and it was they held on to that culture very very hard and understandably so because they had seen what it had done to the country's soccer professional leagues there was there was a period in time that not a lot of people are aware of where the only professional soccer in this country was through indoor there was no outdoor professional soccer and if there was it was regional based not nationally based and so i think that lends itself to the culture of frugality that is um, in MLS's past. But yeah, I, I definitely agree with you there with the, with the regulations kind of being relaxed a little bit. It does allow for MLS to become more of both an import and an export market. Obviously, when you talk about Al Marone, 
he was brought in, he was imported, and he was, there was a hefty fee paid for there, and he was a star here. He played in front of 70,000 people a night, and then when he was done, he was exported. Um, now, I'm not entirely up to date with how the fee was distributed to the league, because that is something you are only granted the major or the most of the fee if you do produce those players through homegrown contracts. So there, there is still issues with how players are exported. But I do think it is important to note that MLS has, in our lifetime, come a long way. But to switch gears a little bit here, I want to get back to some current events in terms of how the coronavirus is impacting seasons worldwide. I know I don't typically like to talk about European soccer. I feel like there are more educated people than myself to determine or to act as pundits and how their season should go. But since this is obviously a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, I do want to talk briefly with you, Nate, about how the coronavirus is going to impact seasons from titles to Champions League positions to promotion relegation. What do you think on that? Uh, I mean, to me, for the foreseeable future, um, I mean, I don't see this you know, letting up, especially Champions League. I don't see how they're going to really do Champions League domestically. That's, you know, that's another discussion. Um, but Champions League, I think, you know, you might see no champion or a very expedited process where, you know, you're playing a team on Sunday and then you're playing the second leg in a different location on, on a Thursday and kind of basically doing this expedited one-month Champions League. Um, it'd be very, it's going to be very interesting to see. I mean, like you said, we're in unprecedented times. So I do think UEFA as a whole, um, if we're just focusing on Europe, kind of needs to have a, a unified plan for all all the participating FAs. Uh, you can't have England doing one thing and, and Germany doing another, and especially with Champions League, it can make for uh, an unfair advantage. Um, as far as my personal belief, for the time being, um, let's say right now I think they should just wait and then um, everything will start back up. They could, if the players are, have been in quarantine, I don't see why... If all 23 players, will say, have been in quarantine for the last two weeks, I don't see why. Uh, I'm not, you know, an ophthalmologist, <laughs> but I don't see why they couldn't start playing each other if they've only been in contact, you know, with their families and haven't had outside contact with people. I don't see why they couldn't start playing uh, rather shortly. Um, but I do believe it is extremely, extremely important to finish out the season. Um at almost whatever cost, not health risks, obviously, but even if it's detrimental to the 2020-2021 season, I believe it's absolutely necessary because I think it involves, you know, sport is largely involved with integrity, and I just think it's extremely important to be able to finish out what you started if you start cutting seasons short, um, who people have played already. Like, we'll take the Prim, for example. St. George have you know, nine games left, and they've been against the bottom nine with the exception of themselves. Well, I'd back them to try and dig out of the relegation zone versus uh, a team who would be one place above them, in theory, could play the top nine team. Well, they're probably going to lose all nine games, you know? Um, so I think it's extremely important just for the integrity to not cut the season short. Um, and one thing I believe could be beneficial is cutting the season now, basically stating, hey, we're going to start back up July 1st. So you cut the season and make the players have season and then just run basically half the 2020-2021 season with the extra games that are left, left over. 
um, and basically just cut it now, give the players their rest right now, and then have them uh, come back, give them a three-week preseason, and then start the season with the additional games left over from the 2020 season. Yeah, I, I totally agree there. Uh, briefly, to touch on that, Nate was referring to the relegation battle in the Premier League, and there are, you can't, it, it would be very difficult to cut the season now and just send the people who are in the zone down because, uh, for example, Aston Villa is down two points with a game in hand. So if you send them down, how do, you, how do you rationalize that? They played one less game and are within the margin of one game to stay, stay up. And they say the most expensive game in soccer is the playoff to go from the championship to the Premier League. I mean, the money involved in the broadcasting rights alone from the championship to the Premier League are astronomical. And I don't have so much of a problem if they were to void the season and they make Liverpool the title winners and that happens. That wouldn't bother me at all. What would bother me would be the notion that they're just deciding who to send down. I'm far more concerned with the relegation aspect of it than the the title aspect of it. I feel like there's financially speaking, much more at stake down there. And also, it's tighter down there. Obviously, there's nobody even questioning if Liverpool is going to win. I mean, they've been called the inevitables for months now. Yeah, it's an inter- interesting point you bring up. Uh, I would agree that definitely the relegation is way more critical, actually, than winning a title, which is odd, odd to say. You know, something we're not very exposed to in American sports. But these teams... You know, you'll see Sunderland, even a couple of years ago, dropping out of the Premier League was so devastating to their balance sheet and to their, their revenue that they dropped again because they had to offload players. Players uh, refused to sign new contracts that would reduce their wagers. Uh, Jack Rodwell comes to mind. And, you like, the relegation is just so detrimental. It's, it's more of a detriment than winning the title or even Champions League is a positive. I, I right now look at the table and... The bot, like 16th, 17th, and 18th, West Ham, Watford, and Bournemouth are all tied on points. So how would you determine who goes down? Are you really going to relegate a team 11 games, or no, excuse me, 9 games uh, from the end of the season through goal differential? Like, it's one thing to relegate a team through the entire season because of goal differential, but you're going to cut a season short by 9 games and cut it because of goal differential? I just don't think of that. That's what I was saying integrity of the sport um, I just don't see that being a very viable option yeah and um, I agree with you and I think I think most rational people also agree with that that argument the issue right now that we're dealing with is that first off to preface the statement I don't think any rational individual genuinely believes that we're going to see the rest of this season played out with fans in the stands. Obviously, going forward, behind closed doors is kind of the format that everybody's talking about. But I read an interesting article today, and in the championship, which is the flight right below the Premier League, they're still estimating that they're going to need 170 essential staffers to operate a game in the championship. They're estimating that 300 essential staffers are going to be needed just to operate a Premier League game. Which is a problem because, I mean, I don't know the exact government regulations in, in England, but in the United States, it's, it's being heavily advised, and in most places, it's actually illegal to meet in congregations of more than 10 people. They're ticketing people. 
which how are you gonna how are you gonna to get past that with 300 people manning a Premier League match and I just I don't know how they're gonna do that there are smarter people than me who are working on this issue obviously there are people who are worried about health concerns which is obviously the top priority and then there are people who understand business and there, there are so many people out there who understand these topics more than I do but I just don't see how they're going to get around those those hard number issues but um, anyway so moving back to Major League Soccer which is where kind of the home of this podcast is Don Garber who is the commissioner of MLS he recently did an interview with Taylor Twelman saying that he is committed to playing as many games as possible, although he does acknowledge that playing games by the middle of May is highly unlikely. But they are, they are exploring different options. They're talking about a mid-season tournament, neutral site games, obviously behind closed doors is the model they're looking at. But yeah, I thought it was pretty, pretty interesting to hear him talk about an alternate season. What do you think about that, Nate? Well, there's two things. I think the neutral site would be pretty pretty interesting. I believe uh, MLB was talking about doing something as well, like in Arizona or someplace where there's basically no rain delays. I think it'd be very interesting. You know, you can kind of control a lot of things. If all the teams are in one city, um, and obviously be behind closed doors, it'd be, make for very interesting times. It'd be almost like a uh, an empty coliseum, but with all the gladiators, you know, being teams, <laughs> and they're, they're competing against each other. But everything is so isolated and controlled that it would be a safe environment, which I think would be a, a very interesting and plausible concept, to be honest. The other one that I think I'm kind of leaning towards, um, but I kind of have it, uh, an affinity or a love more for European-style soccer, and that'd be to what a lot of American soccer fans have been emulating for, or wanting to emulate for a while, and that's just to mock the uh, the Premier League or these European leagues that go fall spring, you know, which go start in August like the Premier League does, and then and May, rather than doing what the MLS currently does, which is um, March to uh, whenever the MLS Cup is. Sometimes it's uh, November, probably. They just moved it back up. But I, I believe that that would be possibly the best way, especially going forward. I think it takes away a lot from the league when you have you know, the Euros going on or Confederations Cup or the World Cup, and you know the league is technically supposed to be going on. I think it just makes it not as ideal of a situation for the growth of the league or just for optimal viewing, you know, some players won't be uh, partaking because they have international duties, whether it's for a major tournament or just World Cup qualifiers over the summer. Big Lane, I've noticed, you know, Joseph Martinez had to miss a couple times for international. Uh, Al Moran had to miss a couple times for international. So um, I think switching to a fall spring could just be a, you know, this could be a blessing in disguise for MLS and giving a lot of American soccer fans what they've been, they've been seeking. Yeah, and I, I totally understand that. I know a lot of people who constantly, they, they want, they desire Major League Soccer to play on the FIFA calendar, which is the international calendar, obviously, that you see in Europe. Obviously, the elephant in the room there is the National Football League. How can you get people to watch a soccer Sunday, which is what MLS oftentimes calls their Sunday matches, when they're playing football all day? or same with Saturday football for college football. But obviously, these are unprecedented times, so unprecedented solutions are going to be talked about. Obviously, I know people are talking about playing soccer games every day to get through the season. Obviously, playing one game 
Monday and then having other two teams play on Tuesday and just running the season through like that, which I find is a pretty interesting talking point. Um, to get back to what you said about neutral sites, I kind of think that's probably the most plausible solution and probably the most likely, which uh, I thought was interesting. Don Garber actually called it the MLS studio. It would almost be like a performance. They would be uh, bringing teams all to one location and just kind of cycling them through like a, like a um, kind of like a youth club tournament. Um, I know the NBA actually talked about doing this where they would they would rent out in massive hotels, put every team on their own floor, and play a game in the hotel's basketball gym. Uh, obviously, that, that's been shot down. At least that's what they're telling us. But uh, I thought that would be pretty interesting, quarantining the NBA into a hotel and having them play in a gym. I found that very interesting. Switching gears to something that hits a little bit closer to home, it was very sad to hear recently that the uh, University of Cincinnati has cut their men's soccer program, obviously a program that's been in action since the early 1970s. I had the, the fortune of playing against them in their last season, um, last fall. It was great facilities, the atmosphere is great, it's in Cincinnati, right across from the football field, all turf, soccer-specific turf, it's fantastic. Uh, obviously sad news to hear such a storied program cut. What do you think about that, Nate? I mean, it was extremely sad to hear. Um, unfortunately, it's, you know, probably won't be the last program to at least cut funding or even terminate uh, a, a whole program uh, because of this virus. I, I'm sure there's a lot of colleges, I know we've talked about this off, off air before, that, you know, there's might be a drop in away games, you know, if there's, if you're flying out to California for, for an away trip and you're on the East coast, there's no real point of doing it. If it's not absolutely necessary for your season, you know, uh, some of these exhibitions where people like to take long road trips, I don't think you'll see these as much because, um, everything's going to be run a little bit thinner. Um, that being said, I do feel extreme. I feel so bad for these Cincinnati uh, players. I can't imagine what they're going through. Thankfully, the university I did see uh, was going to honor their scholarship. Um, so, especially for those seniors who probably don't want to transfer, probably just for their last year of college, I, I do like that. At least since was willing to honor their scholarship and uh, help pay for their tuition. Yeah, and I think the, the dropping of the program, although it is directly correlated with the coronavirus, I think it, it's taking part in a troubling trend in American collegiate soccer obviously it's been the pro or not the program the institution of college soccer has been attacked heavily over the past several years as a outlet that does not is not conducive to producing players who will play for the national team and the professional teams but I think it's important to note that that is not the only goal of college soccer and they're under heavy attack for something that it's not inherently designed to do. It's a condensed season. It's The season runs from August to November, and these these players are they're student athletes. They're not entirely committed to being full-time soccer players. They can't. They have to be in class. They're restricted by the NCAA with how many how many hours they can practice. I mean, it's it's eight hours for certain times of the year. That's just not a feasible amount of time to train to produce 
professional quality players across the board. And obviously there are some other colleges uh, in the past couple years, New Mexico comes to mind, Valparaiso earlier this year, and now Cincinnati who have cut their men's soccer programs. And I feel like it's just kind of a, a troubling trend that's kind of taking grip of the country, obviously opting for more efficient ways of player productivity and moving the game towards a uh, more streamlined production process, but in the process, leaving behind an institution that maybe isn't entirely designed to produce the best soccer players, if you hear what, if you kind of get what I'm coming from there. Yeah, I mean, college soccer, I don't think most people dream of playing, you know, at least getting to college, if not higher. But I mean, you gotta, you have to think that, you know, it's like one to two percent get to play of high school players get to even play at the division one level. So you're already at a certain level, I won't say elite, but I would say top quality um, of a player. And then to go beyond that, you know, you're going to have even less percentage of that. And that's just how it would be across the board. But I think some people are making the assumption that American soccer is farther along than it is. Like, let's not, there are still multiple players who went through college to get to the U.S. men's national team. People like to throw around Josh Sargent, Kristen Pulisic, you know, got Weston McKinney, guys who didn't play college soccer. And yes, that will be the future, but for the time being, we, I mean, Clint Dempsey, he played at Furman. Walker Zimmer played at Furman. But not to mention Jordan Morris, who played at Stanford. Like, some of these guys, Furman's a mid-major, and they produce two professionals. Um, not that we, you know, particularly like Furman, but... Uh, <laughs> But, but there's definitely, you know, people are still produced. Um, even Julian Bressel, who left Atlanta United this year because he wasn't getting the money he deserved, so he went to D.C. United. I mean, he went to, uh, he was at Providence for his first collegiate career. So, although I do agree, but I, the most advantageous or beneficial way to go pro, but the thing is, is most people don't get to go pro at all. And, I mean, especially college, some people don't want to. You know, you're there for a degree, and some people legitimately will make more money as a professional uh, person, not like a, as a profession rather than having soccer be their profession. It's very feasible that you will make more money working a typical nine to five job than working as a soccer player or as an athlete in America. That being said, I just think that um, there's some unfair criticism of collegiate soccer and you have to realize that that's the goal of Elite soccer isn't to make professionals. That's why we have DA. That's why we have this MLS Youth League that we touched on on this podcast. Not to make professional soccer players. That's not the whole goal. Um, and I, I would really hate to see uh, this trend continue. Unfortunately, I think it, it will continue. Um, thankfully, uh, from our experience from the school that we went to, um, we didn't see this happen in our in our career. Uh, if anything, in life kind of got better as, as time went on. Um, but I do think that the general trend across the nation is, is less funding and, and possibly less programs. Yeah, I, I, unfortunately, I see that that's, that's kind of been the norm recently. But to switch gears one last time to kind of head into our final talk here, it was announced yesterday that uh, Liga MX, professional league in Mexico, top flight, has suspended promotion and relegation between the flights for the next five years. That's a massive blow, or not a massive blow necessarily, but 
a massive amount of time to be not promoting teams and not relegating teams, opting away from the European style, or not even the European style, the international model, and going with a little bit more of an MLS model where the top league is separate from the lower leagues. And I, I can't entirely say that it's, it's wrong because after researching a little bit, the second flight in Mexico has gone from 18 teams to only 12 teams in the last couple of years. And it's there, there's also an, a requirement in Mexico to be promoted. You have to file to show that you can financially handle being in the top flight and uh, having the facilities to do so. It's not just about on-the-field success. And no team had qualified yet in, in the second flight to be promoted to the top flight based alone on financials and assets, which I find is a little bit disturbing. You don't want to lower the quality of your, of your top league just, be, just to have promotion and relegation. Um, What's interesting enough is the decision was actually approved both in the top flight and the second flight, um, and teams in the in the second flight will be receiving uh, I can't remember the the dollar amount in pesos, but it it adds up to about eight hundred and fifty ish thousand U S dollars a year for the next five years just to stay in the second division. Um, I don't know that that seems probably like a big blow to these. Um, promotion relegation single issue advocates on Twitter in America. I don't know uh, any way else to put that, but do you have any thoughts on promotion relegation, both, I guess, in Mexico and in general, Nate? I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of uh, promotion relegation across the board. I think it makes for very unprecedented uh, and unique situations. However, for a growing market like America, um, one, I just don't think soccer fans as a whole, um, they're probably more casual fans than absolute just diehards, or um, the ones who are diehards, they're not, they're, they will stick with their club, you know, they'll stick through relegation, but unfortunately we have a lot of fair weather fans in America as a whole, so I don't see a lot of people sticking by a club if they get relegated. Um, so I think the current model works extremely well for MLS, and I think MAX um well, this is a good decision. If somebody doesn't have the facilities for that big man, then they really shouldn't be promoted. I think this is something interesting. It's almost like uh, similar to USL League, uh, excuse me, USL Championship versus League One. I feel like there's more of a relationship between those two leagues rather than MLS and the USL Championship. I do think you know down the line it'd be interesting to see. USL League One and USL Championship have promotion relegation, but I don't think that's necessarily advantageous. I mean, they just started uh, a year ago um, for League One, and uh, I believe they had a team drop out already uh, before this whole coronavirus. Uh, there was still a team that dropped out because they just couldn't handle it financially. Um, I think the most important thing for leagues, particularly starting out, is financial stability. Um, if you're not financially stable, there's too much turnover. People don't know who to follow. If you can't follow a team and, you know, kind of build that bond, I mean, it's a relationship with the club. That's why people say they love their club. It's, it's a relationship, and they need to love their club. And if, if something's changing, you know, every year, it's hard to get, you know, those rivalries, those intense rivalries like, uh, you know, Manchester United versus Liverpool, the North London Derby, El Clasico, the Milan Derby, like all these just very – enthusiastic and, and just passionate derby that is what I think is extremely unique to soccer uh, versus you know in football that yeah they have rivalries um, more so in college than I would say professional but it's just like division opponents rather than 
you know, there's fierce rivalries where people hope the other team gets relegated. Like, very few people would, uh, you know, people wanted, uh, to my knowledge, a lot of Manchester United fans last year, they wanted City to win the title. Cause they're, just because of the expense, even though they were technically rivals, they, would, they hate Liverpool so much that they would rather have their cross-town rivals win the Premier League title than Liverpool being able to hold that over Manchester United. Um, and I, I think that's stability and consistency builds those, that, that somewhat healthy animosity, which uh, makes for, for great uh, entertainment. Yeah, and um, to build on that, a, lot of, a derby that a lot of people don't entirely grasp is how heated it is Manchester United and Leeds. That's one that you would never even think of if you're in the current climate thinking about Leeds as a championship side and United as a massive Premier League side, but they hate each other as much as anybody. If you read Sir Alex's book, they want to beat Leeds as bad as they want to beat anybody in the Premier League any time it comes up. But that's just an aside. Um, another aside is congrats to Nate on using the Spanish pronunciation of Liga MX. I will not burden you with mine, so I'm just going to stay with the letters. But thanks a ton for coming on today, Nate. It meant a lot. Um, I'm hoping that you stay safe during quarantine. It was good catching up with you, man. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a blast, and uh, stay safe.